You are listening to the Sickles and Noise podcast on the ProSound Web Podcast Network, sponsored by RCF and Alan Heath. For over 70 years, RCF's passion for perfection drives the design of every product to create unique experiences for venues around the globe. RCF's Aura Pro Series Professional Active Studio Monitors are optimized for near-field studio applications, broadcast, and desktop use. Whether you're in a small studio using a mobile system or hotel room desk, you have a powerful system to accurately mix with uncolored audio reproduction. Learn more at rcf-usa.com for the latest news and product information. RCF, the sound behind the experience. Alan and Heath has asked us to read this. A math problem. If Bob has 12 pounds of taco meat to serve a crew of 10, which contains two vegetarians and only three dozen corn tortillas and five tomatoes, can I get more bass in my monitor? I wish I could break free Back to where I'm supposed to be Welcome to the Signal to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network. Sam, what episode is this going to be? 198, I think? That sounds right. I think it's 198. Yeah, I think we're at yeah. 198. We're closing in. We're closing in on the glorious 200, which has, which has already occurred. So again, we're talking to you from the future. Uh, thank you for joining us. It's, it's uh, me and Samuel tonight. I'm joined by Sam Boone. Sam, how are you? We're good. We're just hanging out. Just hanging out. As we've been talking about... Um, Different ways to approach analog backup and failover. Oh, yeah. Oh, and it's yeah. been it's been quite a conversation. But we're not going to talk about this tonight. Tonight, we're going to talk to our dear, dear friend, Mr. Nate Clark. Nate, hello. Welcome to the show again. Hi, everybody. <laughs> hey, how's it going, bud? It's good to be here. What you, you been up to lately? Lately, uh, been working around town in between tours. You were you're still in Rochester, right? Rochester, New York. I am, yeah. Fellow upstate. Nate is one of only two friends I have within like, hey, we should hang out tomorrow night driving distance. Three one five represent. Three one five, yes, absolutely. Um so Nate has had a uh you have a, a, a wonderful upward trajectory to your career since I met you, which is really cool. And you uh can say th- that. Uh, you'd be right. <laughs> I met Nate. I I think I was it on Reddit. Were we Reddit friends? Yeah, he was the Reddit friend. So uh, we, I, yeah, yeah. I did a, a, was a Reddit famous. I did a. I was, that's, I'm, that's a ridiculous thing to say. I did a post a couple years ago, and I said I'm going to be at this theater on this day. I'm going to do the show. Anybody wants to like come and see what I'm doing and hang out, check it out. Come on out. And Nate Nate came out and uh, got hired by the by the vendor that I was working with. And did some work there and work for a vendor in Rochester, right? And install companies. I've seen you do a bunch. But but this year, you've been on the road mixing in front of house for a band on a club tour. And I think that's pretty sick, man. Yeah, this is the first time that I've ever actually uh, had the opportunity to go on the road. Been wanting it for a few years. And then uh, there was this thing that happened a couple years ago. And all progress in my career kind of stopped. 
Oh yeah. I'm not, I don't really remember that time. It's a bit of a blur, uh, but the opportunity presented itself. Yeah. Uh, the opportunity presented itself. So, uh, I jumped on it and it's been a very good time. Super cool. So what was it like jumping into your first club tour after, right? You started an install and you also do some work for Eastman as well. And so some classical recording, some audio engineering on that side when you're home. And then even on top of that, right, you are now out with those of us on the road. So what was it like going from not even studio work or just install, but kind of having dabbled in all the above and then really getting into touring? What was that like for you? Well, so I had the opportunity to make my start with a local production company and we were mixing cover bands in clubs and we were doing local small festivals and stuff like that. Frequently, I would take the Mercedes Sprinter van and I would jam it full of everything I need to do a show. I'd drive somewhere, do a show and drive back. Uh, and so that got me pretty used to the kind of PA of the day type of situation where we didn't have systems that were packaged up and ready to go. It was, you come into the shop on Tuesday and you say, I'm going to be here on Friday. I'm going to be here on Saturday. I'm going to be here on Sunday. Here are, th here's one system that I can put in one vehicle and take to these three places. And you just kind of pick and pull. There are loose amplifiers that maybe match these Macaulay tops. Maybe <laughs> if you have to, you just pull out the crossover and you just run it as bi-amped. Um, so I had the opportunity to work for a company where you had to be very versatile. Uh, and that has lended itself really well to going into a bunch of different clubs. Uh, I will say this though. People like to talk about PA of the day and console of the day. Dude, mixing band of the day is actually more challenging, I would say, than either of those two things. I mean, I love PA of the Day. It's one of my favorite things I do, and I try to do at least one every year at this point because I, I just absolutely love walking with the processor and seeing what we can make out of something. But talk a little bit more about going from Band of the Day to now consistently working with one artist and really getting to refine you know, a mix and hearing the same set you know, more than once and having more than one go at it. Yes. Yeah, so not only is it the same band, uh, we have our own mic package and we have our own front of house console. And so it's literally so easy. It feels like cheating. I, I have never had a mix come together quite so easily before. And I was fortunate in that I inherited a pretty good console scene from their previous engineer. That was, that was going to be my first question. You, did you, did yeah. you pick up where he left off? Um, or did you start over? I started basically right where he had been. Uh, we did, I don't know, four or five days of tech before our first weekend run. And I pretty much the only things I changed were to make the layout a little bit better for me. It's just an M32R, so there isn't really that much you can do. But I liked his vocal stack was pretty good. His bus processing was pretty good. And the way that he mixed the band was it lent itself pretty well to the way the band wanted to be mixed. So I didn't really want to rock the boat too much. So I rolled with it. Turned out it was pretty good. So I've been rolling with basically the same console scene for a while. I just make minor changes every once in a while when I feel like I want to do something different. And uh, I need to mix the IEMs because <laughs> they do it themselves on a rack mixer. So what, so what are you, you're carrying console, you're carrying mics, you're carrying a split. I think that's, it's an interesting conversation of like, what am I going to carry? Because it's not like you've got trucks. When you have trucks, you can be like, yeah, we'll throw in an extra four 
you know, amps or to back up. Like it's really easy to, to just put another case on a truck in a lot of cases, but you have a, a van and a trailer, right? So uh, yeah. you have to be very, very, very uh, discerning about what you're going to carry. So like talk, talk about that a little bit. Uh, it's good that the band already owned that stuff before I even started working for them. You know, these are not my yeah. things that I've brought in. Uh, but there was actually a little bit of pushback when I said, Hey, I want to bring my soldering iron in the trailer. And they said, I don't know if we have space. For that. <laughs> I, was like, I, I mean, maybe you don't, but I'm pretty sure you do. And you're going to be very glad that I have it when we do. And I found a spot that was underneath a, a shelf and I jammed it under there. And then when the power supply for the drummer's personal monitor mixer died, I was able to fix it. And he was very mm. glad that I had found the space for it in the trailer. Magically. <laughs> I think that's a, th there's always those. And I remember it was so funny. I remember doing that type of tour and being like 19 and 20 and having this whole, like, I need to pack every possible thing I can fit into my backpack. Cause you just don't know. And, you know, we were, I was going, I was soldering back wedges, wedges together and they, you didn't, you had to fix all sorts of random stuff. And although it was annoying and it made it very hard to get consistency, it definitely taught me so much and you learn how stuff works and how to fix stuff and how to bandage stuff and how to just get through the show. Um, and then, you know, we were, we were last week, um, we talked with Denny, you know, about, you know, the, the, doing the, the Volbeat tour. Uh, and there was such a different situation for me. It was just like, I feel like my Pelly's empty because all of a sudden, you know, when you've got a whole crew and it's not just you and a van with four, four guys in that are in the band, um, you have a, a very different situation in terms of like, what do I need to bring? because you no longer have to like personally be prepared for every single eventuality because it's like, no, there's four other people on the audio crew and they have toolboxes and, and work boxes. And, and it was just a different vibe where I felt like I was being irresponsible by leaving the house with way less stuff, but it's not, it's not the same thing, you know? Well, Michael, you and I talked about that because I, <laughs> I inherited that gig from you is the crazy thing is you, you had literally done the tour prior. Right. And you know, same, same role, same position, but and you tell me all the time. You know, he tells me constantly that I carry too much stuff. She does. I, she does I carry too, too many tools. Okay, but like I use them all. <laughs> and so this is where, and I'm getting ready to have to pare down again because my kit's changing again this year. Um, and so I am coming down to, you know, I I the first time I took some things out of my pelly, I felt <laughs> naked and I like missed the which pelly. She travels with two pellies, Nate. Not I true. told her to I, stop I doing carry, that shit. I carry one at a time. I have two separate kits. It depends on what role I'm in. I have an SE kit and I have a tech kit. Okay, let, let me have this, Michael. Um, uh, you do you. I'm just saying. But, I I don't want to carry that shit. Well, you don't tech. It's, it's, <laughs> well, it's not, I need different tools. I need like Ethernet yes. adapters and dongles and shit. I, I typically am not soldering. I know you do. That's, that's fair. And so that's true. I, I do not tour with a soldering iron. Um, we just had H. H would set up his little shop H in does. the back hallway, and I'd be like, hey, H, this broke. And he'd be like, I got you. And he would talk to his wife on video chat and sit out there and solder, and he would have a grand old time. So guys, like, knock yourself out, man. <laughs> and, and it's super helpful when you need it, like you said, Nate. Um, but, you know, Nate, how did you go about choosing the tools in your kit, especially in a scenario like that? Because, like, for me, I look at what we're going to go do and what my role is and what we're doing. And I, you know, kind of judge accordingly. And I go, you know, what are, what are the things that are going to be, what are the things I don't think that anybody else is going to have on that tour that I really, really want? 
and what are the things that I just use constantly? Yeah. So I will say one thing, a lesson that I still have to learn is how to prioritize what to pack. Cause right now what I carry with me is basically fucking everything. Um, like I have six microphones with me just in case there's a surprise horn section in my stoner rock band one night because I've had surprise horn sections show up <laughs> in other shows before and I've been burned by not having enough 57s or whatever. So right now, like everything I have in my Pelican is something that at one point I needed on a gig. And I said to myself, oh shit, if only I had X. And then, you know, a week later it's on my cart on Amazon and it's on its way to my house. And then I never have to say, oh shit, I need X again. Uh, but on this last run, we were out for three weeks. The only thing I ever pulled out of my Pelican was my Scarlet Solo and my measurement mic. I didn't need any of the shit that I had in there. And I'm not going to be able to bring it with me when you go to Europe in the spring. So I am going to have to learn to prioritize. I think that's sort of maybe an ongoing, like, I don't think there's ever going to be a point where you get that perfect. You know what I mean? Every like, time no, I think I not. do, it changes again. I, I'm like, it, well, what if I just... And then I, I gave up and I just filled there. my pelly with, with granola bars. Do you remember? About like 36 yeah, I, I minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was... I, you were like, what should I bring? granola brick. That's like, I have snacks, damn it. He had like measurement mics, a calibrator, and straight up like seven granola bars and a jacket in his 1510. And I was like, what tour are you doing? That I jacket. screwdriver. <laughs> like, what is That like, jacket served me well. Because you go into the morning and it's freezing and then you get hot and you take it off and then the other night you put and, it back on. And it's I very functional. That, I use it. Like, I use it every day. I, you do. And but in the same vein on the same tour I did not I carried you know less granola bars and more tools. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have both, okay? You just get I, together I, we were if you combine together, our we if make you a combine whole our two things we had we were very prepared. Uh yeah. Nate what have you added or changed? Because like you said they they had it figured out. They're doing their own thing. They had somebody who's mixing them before. Like you stepped into it, but if you, I know you're like me, and you come in and you're like, okay, well, I see a place that I can make an improvement here, or I see a place that I can streamline this, or gee, it would be really cool to add this thing. So it either it changes size, it gets bigger, it gets smaller. You change a thing. Like what are you, what are you doing to make it yours? I definitely did compact my Pelican down a fair bit before the first tour, and then again after the second tour, I pulled out some extraneous shit that was like absolutely unnecessary. Uh, like the super special like computer screwdriver kit with like 900 bits in it that are, you've never seen in real life. I I took that out because not only do I not need it for a rock show, I also have never needed it in my life. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I took some of those things out. I used to carry uh, like a USB gooseneck, gooseneck console lamp and a power strip with USB ports on it. It's great for charging my phone, but there's a power strip inside the doghouse of the console. So I don't need to bring that with me. You know, I stopped bringing headphones because they take up a lot of space. And I just started using my IEMs to solo stuff up, uh, you know, things of that nature. I'm going to pull out the extra 57 and I'm going to pull out the extra 609 pretty soon because I don't need those because we carry a whole mic pack. But in terms of like streamlining stuff, uh, I just took a bunch of the XLRs that they own that we run to the same place every single day and plug the same things into, and I taped them together. And that saved me <laughs> probably nine minutes on every single stage build, which doesn't seem like a lot, but when you multiply it over four weeks, it adds up. Well, and that's the thing, right, is I think, you know, realizing that 
the really, really simple things can save you so much time. Like, did you pre-make all your looms, you know, or if you've got rehearsal time, like I, there, I had 10 days in rehearsal at one tour I monitor tacked and it was just like, well, I guess I'm going to sit here and label and loom things because I don't want to do this seven, eight, nine, 10. If you've got 36 drum inputs, I don't really want to plug in 36 individual cables right and lay them perfectly across the drum kit and hope I get my lengths right you know every day and on that tour we left them patched we left the w1 boxes patched on the risers and literally just pulled mics and pulled w1s and it was so fast and it was one of those things where I was like why why have I never seen this done like that and you know little things like the back of the guitar racks are fans you know the end of every w1's fan and fan out and they just live there and they stay patched and everything's either connected to panels or, you know, stays with in the fan and you just, you just hit them. And it, I was like, this is fantastic. And I said it to somebody like, oh yeah, I've been doing that for years. And I was like, yeah, but nobody talks about it. Like, <laughs> like you could have told me like, you know, it's one of those things you only learn with experience and from people who have a lot of experience. So what have you learned over the last year? Wow, you're ruining your question already? No, no. <laughs> and well, what I'm saying is like technically <laughs> over the last year. Right. Like what are the, what is your experience taught you where you're like, these are all these little tricks that I now really like in clubs or, you know, really like, cause it's not an install. Uh, here's the biggest life hack that I've found just for my own situation. Uh, like Michael, you came to my show, you saw the lead singer, Sean, he's like six foot five, right? Yeah. He's, he's a giant. Yeah. We play in clubs that are like 200 cap, 300 cap clubs. The ceilings are about seven foot. And he's six foot five. So the PA is at like chest height for him when he's on the stage, which means that his vocal mic is always, always ready to feed back just from mid, low, mid lobes coming off of the, the single point source box that I've got to mix into. Dude, so it's a three piece band. And so the lead vocal is on stage right. If you take that microphone and you just pan that to stage left by like 13%, you get so much more gain before feedback. It's outrageous. And the stereo image functionally does not change at all. Little pro tip for you. <laughs> You're doing uh, something that I, I sort of viewed as a rite of passage for myself afterwards. I didn't realize it at the time because I just didn't have the context to know what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing when I was doing it when I was 18 or 19 or whatever, but you're, you're wrangling club PAs every day. And, um, you learn a lot really quick about how to do that and how to get results in a short amount of time. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know, you know, I was doing this, let's see, it would have been, you know, 2007 or something like that, right. 2008. Like I didn't know about measurement as a concept. I didn't know that that existed. The idea of tuning a PA to be consistent from night to night, like none of that had occurred to me. And I didn't learn about that until much later in my career, but, um, I did do this thing where I need to go into this club and get the show to sound good every night. And sometimes it was a really nice PA and a nice, you know, we had to literally we had an SC 48 on that run and I had a Mackie VLZ and I had everything in between. And, it's not the same show, you know, <laughs> it's just not, it's not the same show. Um, and like from a consistency standpoint, um, I don't, I don't want to do that. You know, you, 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 
eliminating variables is how we achieve consistency. And like that, that's a different console every day in a different PA every day in a different room. Like it's all variables. Um, so it's not, it's not a good approach for providing consistency for your artists, but sometimes it's the only option, but it was remarkably educational for me to unfuck all these. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it is like, yeah, like that's my favorite word. I all of these. Yeah. So like I've, I discovered all the different ways in which a PA can have problems, you know, like, and I didn't have the, I didn't had no context of what I was doing or that, you know, the, any of the science of it. I just, I just hadn't gotten that far yet. I was just brute forcing my way through it, but it made me really good, really fast at just finding those issues and, and maybe not fixing them, but figuring out how to work around them. So you're, you are a, a lot more well-equipped <laughs> than I was because you, you have experience with measurement and you're carrying, you're carrying a measurement rig and, and, you know, just more general, more general uh, context than I had. Um, well, but I spent you, the first six years of my career uh, with local production company putting up whatever the hell Frankenstein PA of the day <laughs> was available. I mean, I have literally stacked ground stack turbo sound IQ 12 active boxes on top of EAW 850 subs. And that's my mains. And I've got four <laughs> more IQ 12s as my wedges. And I have twice as much wedge on my stage that I do mains, but that's the PA I had because that's what was available. And I got a mix of three hour country cover band on it. So I, figured out like relatively quickly how to just get it at least to the point where I can mix a rock show. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of wiggle room when all you have to do is mix a rock show and you know, your mileage may vary depending on your standards. Yep. And lately I've been actually going for the same target curve every night as close as I can get, but it didn't take that long to develop that skill. I had a lot of really bad mixes until I had that <laughs> skill, but that's something I figured out relatively early on. But that's the other conversation is even though it's PA of the day, you're getting to a point, right, where you can tell, is it the mix? Is it the PA? And and not only walking in and having an appreciation for, like, for me, at least doing clubs, as we kind of talked about on the last episode a little bit, um, it was a really great way for me to learn how important all the really little things can be, like the importance of verifying left and right. In an arena, you're kind of like, oh, duh, it's my system. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, for me, I'm like, all right, what stupid thing did I do? But even beyond that, in a club, it's amazing how often they're not the same or even oh, yeah. I would say more often oh, than yeah. not, something in a club will, will fail a basic verification. So like left, right, subfill, left yeah. and right matching, like all of the speakers working, all of them, you know, all of your front fill sounding the same. Basic shit like that, those basic verification tests. I say more often than not in a club environment. So I'm going to say from 600 cap on down, more often than not, there will be one of those problems. Um, uh, and, absolutely. And then so I, I, I often hear people say like, well, it's, you know, it's not really worth it for me to like go through this verification process and or get out a measurement tool. Like I'm just doing these small clubs. I'm like, you are, you're at the fucking epicenter, bro. Like you are way more likely to have issues in those types of environments, frankly, like it becomes more important for me to start checking those things. Cause I, you know, there is, there are a handful of small venues around here that, you know, I, I do a couple times a year with, you know, friends, bands and stuff like that. And I think you've done some of those with me, Nate, but it's just, you know, those, mm -hmm. those little, those little dive bars and things like that, like way higher, way higher likelihood of accounting an issue. So like that, that's when those the tools coffee really shops. Become, yeah, those, yeah, the coffee exactly. shops, bro. Right. Right. I mean, that's one of my favorite things is I, there's a 600 cap club 20 minutes from my house when I'm home and I do a lot of work for them. And 
I love taking my measurement rig in there and just, just seeing, you know, tuning the wedges, you know, like things like that. And, you know, it's amazing, especially on small stages, how awesome tuned wedges are and how much easier <laughs> it can make your life. Oh yeah. You know, when you have four live guitar cabs on a 20 by 20, you know, 20 by 10 stage. I still freelance for some venues in the area, uh, in particular, like there's this casino out in Rome that I go to sometimes and it's always rock bands and it's always wedges and it, you know, it's fine. We're going to mix a party band in this 200 cap room. It's, it's great. But the very first thing I do when I get there, because I'm substituting for a house tech that day is just turn off whatever the last house tech did. I'm gonna bypass <laughs> the graph EQ. I'm going to flatten out all the parametrics. Oh, you put like six 9 dB cuts on your wedge. Yeah. I'm going to undo all of that. And I'm just going to turn the fader down, you know, so there's definitely still a lot of that in my life. I'm just fortunate that I don't have to do too much of it on tour. I remember, gee, I don't even know where this was. I have, I have like members of being like a honky tonk bar or something like that. It was, it was somewhere like in middle America, I think. And I remember it was a Midas Verona console or a Venice. One of the, it was, uh, it was like the 320. Uh, I've seen that in real yeah, life. Yeah. I remember that. And, um, I remember the house tech saying, whatever you do, just don't, don't touch my graphics. And I was like, can you just bypass it? And he's like, yeah, just pop. You know, I was like, that's cool. <laughs> like, yeah, like, let's start from that, you know, and if we don't like it, then we'll talk. But I, I think, I think there's a, I wrote an article for pro sound web somewhere about this and, you know, churches are the, are the repeat offender here where you end up with 30 years of somebody did an EQ and someone else does an EQ somewhere else on the desk on top of it. And then someone else. Did. So you have layers and layers and layers of EQ that are fighting each other. It's like battle bots. You know what That's I mean? How you end up with um, a 31 band graph that has every single fader all the way right, down. Right. So, so it's just like, all right, all right, kids, let me lay this on you. Every EQ in your system has a job, right? The input EQ is for inputs. You're compensating for the, what's coming into the microphone and the, the characters of the microphone, the characters of the source, the performer, the instrument that it's on, right? The output EQ compensates for the output that's a, that is driving. So is it the wedge or is it a loudspeaker? You know what I mean? Like, so it, you, you don't cross the streams. You can't, cross, you know, as soon as you start, as soon as you start trying to tune the PA on your mic EQ, you got a problem, you know? Or you start you start trying to uh, retune the PA because of your vocal mic or something like that. Like, it, 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 what's they, Wayne's rule? If he touches you know touches the same thing on more than what two or three channels, it goes out of the PA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you yeah. see these you see these club systems where it's like every channel has a cut at three point six, and it's like that's probably not. I don't think every single input on your stage has a problem with three point six. It's probably your PA has a problem with three point six. So so those are the kind of things you take that out. You know, and I think. Chris Mitchell did the input side of this, right? Chris Mitchell with Humphreys McGee went very far down the road of, okay, well, I want to, I'm thinking I need to do a low, a, a low shelf cut on this microphone. So what is it about this mic or this source that's making me want to get rid of low frequencies? Do we move the mic? Do we change the mic? Do we retune the source? Let's do that. And then they not use that EQ filter. And it's sort of the same logic on the output side, which is, um, you know, if we sure we're clear what we're compensating for and, you know, not, not using 32 filters instead of using the one filter. And, and, uh, as soon as you start going, okay, every EQ has a job, where do I want to compensate for this thing? Is it an output thing? It goes on the output EQ. Is it an input thing? It goes on the input EQ. And you don't start chasing your tail. You don't end up with those things. And the other nice thing about that is your board mix no longer sounds crazy when you, when you record it, right? Cause, cause if you do your PA tuning on your input 
and your input channels effectively, your board mix sounds insane, you know? Um, and that was the oh, thing yeah. that was revealed during COVID was all these churches now started live streaming. So right. forever, they've just been mixing into their console, into their PA in the room, and it's all good, right? Because the, the sum total of what's happening from that microphone to what comes out the loudspeaker, that whole signal chain is doing what it needs to do. But if the cues are, you know, not in the right spot in that signal chain, you take your board mix and you plug it into Facebook and you stream it, and all of a sudden, it sounds crazy. And so a lot of churches during COVID were like, you know, the, all the live sound forums that I was like looking at, a lot of them, like you saw this post just come up all the time. Why did our live stream sound crazy? It sounds fine in the room. And and that's why, you know, it's like, I right, take all that stuff out, like get your PA sorted out so that what comes out of the console is what comes out of the PA. And then you can live stream your board mix and it's fine. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's one of those habits that you develop early on is just thinking about like, okay, not only do I need this filter, but where's that filter live and not crossing your legs like that, you end up having a, a easier time. <laughs> you get, you get, you want to go a lot quicker and you're not fighting yourself. You know what I mean? The only moves I make that correct for the room that happen on input channels are always my base amp. Uh, because mm -hmm. we're in rooms that are small enough that I get huge nodes and anti nodes at certain notes and it's always D, the tonic of every <laughs> single song. <laughs> and I don't have enough filters on my output to notch out every note that's resonating like a son of a gun. So I usually will end up just getting the narrowest cut I can on my bass channels to just try to excite that as little as possible. <laughs> Knowing that there's still a 610 amp on stage that's happening anyway, uh, I just don't want people to get their hair blown back by an E and not an E. <laughs> Kat and I went to one of Nate's shows a couple of weeks ago, and there was this one note that the whole venue like started yeah, vibrating. Yeah, the whole venue rattled. And yeah, it was the root note of every <laughs> song. And I was like, um, "That's the roof. Like, like that's not even the PA. That's not. Uh, we're not going to be able to do anything about that." Um, and so that's just one of those um, things that, again, it's kind of an, uh, a little bit unspoken, I think. But in a lot of ways, those smaller shows are harder. The, the, like you said, game for feedback is a much bigger challenge in a small club. Uh, you know, well-behaved PA is much a, a bigger challenge in a small club. You know, dealing with the stuff that comes off the stage is a much bigger challenge. Uh, you know, uh, those types of things, you don't, you don't have modes at 250 hertz in, in theaters. And, you know, and, and, and these, you're talking about, a, you know, that four-foot wavelength when your venue is, you know, 150 feet deep. It, the physics changes, you know, you're your Schroeder frequency is, is so low that you're just not dealing with that in the same way. And it, it's, it is harder. So I think a lot of people look at bigger gigs and they go, wow, I, I don't know how I'd manage that. Like it seems so much more complicated, but like a lot of those things get easier when the, when the show gets bigger and the stage gets bigger and literally your PA is further from your talent microphones and your rooms get big enough that you don't have those crazy localized things. And hopefully the HVAC's not going to fall off the roof, you know? So I think that in, in, in a, in a real sense, a lot of the habits that you're building in the club circuit to be dealing with those things, to be cognizant of those things, like you're giving yourself good habits to be aware of those things as you move up and you go to bigger clubs and theaters and stuff. Well, and here's the thing, right? It, in a lot of ways, scales up and doesn't always scale down, right? Like you can go from a club show into an arena show and understand how that PA system works, but you know, a lot of times you do a lot less work on a larger line or on a larger, you know, PA. 
than you do, you know, five boxes aside versus 12 of anything. Right. Because the biggest house I walked into was a thousand cap in Denver. Uh, it was, we were in, we were in the Gothic theater, 12 boxes of something that everybody else recognized that I don't, it's some big D and B thing. And I'm like 45 feet from it. It's just blasting me in the face, but it sounded so good. I didn't need any filters. And by the time I got done walking the room, I asked him for another 2DB on the underbelks just because I felt like I needed to ask for something. And then I went and listened to it again, and I said, yeah, I need you to take those 2DB out, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can you talk about the advancing process a little bit? Like, it's just you, right? Like, you, there's not, like, a tour manager and a production manager and, like, all these people that are preparing your arrival. We have a tour manager. Uh, most of his duties in terms of advancing are just to make sure that we have a place to park and to make sure that we have, you know, a guarantee and uh-huh. to make sure that we have a green room and mm-hmm. to make sure that we have, you know, a case of beer or whatever. He, I'm CC'd on everything. And like we send in a stage plot, but when your stage plot says we have our own mics, cables, sub snakes, console in your rig, like, you don't need to really advance anything with a house at that point. The only thing you need to figure out is where's your left, right? Do I got to take it from my stage box or do I got to take it out of my console? Yep. Sure. But I did just alter our stage plot for our Europe run where we're going to be carrying a re- much reduced mic pack. We're going to be carrying a console, but not so much a rack mixer for the in-ears. Uh, and there's going to be places where we can't use it. And we have some fly dates coming up where we won't have a desk at all. So I've made huh. some alterations to our stage plot and our input list to you know better reflect what that's going to look like. Dude, I remember... And I took the old guy's name and number off the paper. <laughs> yeah, that's important. I, re- I remember like going like oh okay i took i the the i was the my my uh van tour that i did was the same thing i inherited it from another mixer and the first thing i did was like okay i hat mic gone like overhead mic gone like i cut i cut from like 23 inputs down to like i don't know 11 or 12 because it was like hey we're we're getting we're getting on average 20 minutes to make this work like 20 minutes of uninterrupted time on these stages in a lot of cases like we don't have a lot of time so do I want to have less than one minute per input or do I want to have two minutes per input? So I, I like, I'm not going to put a mic on the ride symbol in a, in a 250 cap club and then just turn it to negative 40 anyway. Like I, you know, it, I didn't have anybody I on have the one of those, point, you know, it's my vocal mic. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, it, it, it became an exercise in streamlining this stuff. And like, do you really need snare bottom? And you know what I mean? And maybe you do, maybe you don't, I don't, I don't know, you know, that answer is different for everybody, but I really cut pretty deep and I erred on the side of it's not essential to this show. Let me get rid of it. And what I found is, um, that would let me spend more time on those inputs, you know, spending more time on each input. And, you know, it was a hip hop artist and it was just like, all right, well, if I have 20 minutes, I'm going to get that, that vocal banging. Like that's got to be there, you know what I mean? Like that—that's—that's that's the whole show, and then we'll deal with Tom too, you know, afterwards. But I, I was—I was burning. I, I saw time getting burnt on on things that, you know, were not the the priority, and so I I, I probably wasn't very organized about it because I was nineteen and you know I wasn't experienced with doing it. But I sort of was just like, why am I do, spending all this time on all the, you know these other inputs when like the ones that we have aren't all working? Like let's. I don't, I don't care about the hi-hat mic. It's bouncing off the ceiling. It's lo- like, Nate said, it's launching all over the stage, you know, like, yeah. like, I think, I think maybe we skip that one and we worry more about getting the keys in the bass and the kick drum and the, and the lead vocal going. 
Well, and the other thing too is, you know, shows like that are really cool ways to, you know, play with kind of like Michael, we talk about Legos in terms of systems, right? Where, you know, we have speakers and, you know, we decide where to put them or how we want to use them or where they're going to be allocated and what we're going to do to them. You know, it's the same thing with mics, especially, you know, on a small stage or with, you know, a limited input list or, you know, I have X amount of mics, X amount of inputs. How am I going to get mm -hmm. the best sound to work with out of whatever's on stage? And so at least for me, like getting to be home and, you know, hang out in the 600 cap club, it's, it's been really cool to experiment. And I, I get to try a whole bunch of stuff that I don't ever all right, well, let me ask you this then, because I, I think if Kyle were here and he said he might, he might pop in, if Kyle were here, he would talk about, because he loves to talk about it, like going into a club and only having four channels of compression. Right. And you now have to decide where do I want these the most, you know, like I have to prioritize and it's really nice on a, you know, you're on an X32 Nate, like you can put a compressor on everything if you want to, I probably shouldn't, but you can. And so you're not exercising that mental mechanism of like, what's my priorities with this, you know, and I think that's a healthy process, but Sam, I wanted to ask you, like, going back to this club in your hometown now, like, now that you've spent the last year on the road working in a lot of different contexts and, and all sorts of venues and stuff, like, what have you brought back to the club from what you took away from that? You know, the the essentials are really essential. And beyond that, everything else is nice. But if you don't fix the problem scaling it up or scaling it down, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make it better. Right. You know, and I'm, I'm really lucky in that, uh, you know, a lot of the PAs I spend a lot of time with, you know, the, the club, in my hometowns got a lot of the same stuff, right. It's, it's super overkill for this room, but e even then, you know, it's, it's really nice to get back to basics and, and have to sit down because I'm so used to living in like tech world system world when I'm gone that like, I, I have to mix when I'm home and I never have to mix. And so it's exercising that part of my brain where I'm thinking about it. And, and really, you know, I can look at kind of before touring as a system tech and after, and, you know, even mixing monitors going, Oh, is that the input? Is that the wedge? You know, it, and, and even thinking about those things where before it's like, Oh, it's this problem. I have to fix it. I'm going to default to pull it out of the wedge. <laughs> but now it's like, Oh, okay. We're going to like, we're going to think about this and we're going to listen to it a little differently. And a so little you're critically. saying more systematic thinking is what you're saying? Yes. And also, you know, just changing your priorities. Like you said, you know, you know, short changeovers. I, I don't care if it's five minutes in the club, right? Like that doesn't, that doesn't bother me anymore. It's, you know, I, I know how to, I have this process and I have this workflow and I've learned that I can apply it anywhere regardless of the tools. And I just change, I change it a little based on the tools I have to work with and the job I'm doing, but the principles are all the same, right? It's, you know, and, and a lot of ways that I also have a new appreciation for, you know, you, you get out what you put in. So when we have really good guitar players come in and really good bands, it's super fun to listen to them. And it's really cool to get to be creative on those. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you, you do a little bit of damage control and, you know, that principle is really, really magnified when, you know, I, I have eight mics and six of them are 57s, the other two are 58s, like, and you do the thing. Um, but definitely that process. Yeah. When I started mixing, uh, I'm, I'm on the younger side, right? Uh, I'm somewhere in between Sam and Michael in terms of age. Uh, but the company I worked for was, was old enough that, 
for the first, I don't know, three or four years, I was mixing on all analog all the time. Allen and Heath GL 2400s or Zeds or like a Yamaha MG 16 XU. There was this Crest X8, which was really cool, but it was super heavy. We didn't oh, want yeah, people remember, to flip yeah. it, so like, <laughs> I used it. So, you know, I got to experience the, you have two channels of Graph EQ. Make sure you use them in the right place. You have one outboard reverb. You have four compressors. And then a, a few years after that, I went back to college, and I started mixing in fucking basements. And you have a four-channel mixer that's on top of a washing machine you have <laughs> 60 people crammed into this basement and you have three wedges down there and you have two <laughs> microphones you got kick drum and you have vocal and you better make sure that those are coming out and boy let me tell you what that's the fire right there yeah i will say this right and I, one of the first heads of audio i ever worked for at the first like company i ever worked for you say this all the time but i don't think it like sunk in until i I went and did uh, that Volbeat tour where it was just like club, 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 arena, arena, arena festival. Like it was just the strangest thing in the world to me. Um, and it's like, it takes the same amount of gear to do a little show as it does a big show. If you don't look at the PA, right? Like it's pretty close. You, you need a snake. You need some input boxes. You need some sub snakes, you know, some IO, a console, maybe you got a monitor console, but that's, you know, you, we leave you the bass player the at home for anything majority. under 800 cap. Just not allowed to come. Yo, but. how do I talk them into that? Di um, <laughs> only, anyways. But you know, the and and that side of things, right? The troubleshooting's all the same, right? A lot of the repair is very similar. You know, you're, it's not like all of a sudden you go from 200 cap to 1,000 cap and everything changes, even though your venues are five times the size. Yeah. And the, the habits that you form, you're going back to what Michael said a little bit earlier, the habits you form will carry with you. I used to have this wrestling coach when I was in peewee wrestling. People like to have, like they say the phrase, practice makes perfect. This coach hated that phrase. And what he always said was, practice makes permanent. Mm. What you good. practice becomes your reality. It becomes the thing you default to if you're falling back on old habits or just becomes the thing you're used to. Uh, and you know, if you never give yourself the chance to build good habits, you're never going to have good habits. You, that's the second sage thing. Before we started recording tonight, you said, "Would you say fifty percent of a plan is not a plan?" <laughs> Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Exactly what he said. Oh, that's born out of. That's born out of a different disastrous uh, event where you know is like, "Hey, what do we have for rain cover in case it rains overnight?" We, we set up today. The show's tomorrow, and the answer is, "Well, it's only thirty percent chance of rain." And I said. It's only 30% chance of rain, but you're going to be 100% screwed if it does rain. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, that's interesting. I, uh, Nate, you have a background as a musician and you went to college for it. Like, how does that information and knowledge and experience that you picked up and the, you know, the experience of playing yourself? Um, actually, you've, you've been on one more episode than you think because you, you're, you were playing drums in my basement on one of the episodes. Uh, I think it was Two. one. Of, oh, yeah. <laughs> at least two because um, it was one that i recorded there yeah, too and it was also yeah. in the basement so guest appearance I, via that's true i remember did. jamie saying i was determined to be homeless <laughs> <laughs> um how, but you are now in a van with musicians and working very closely with musicians and you're not you know 
you're not at such a large scale physically in the venue where you're where you're separated from them like you're you're very much involved very closely with them like how does that play into your interactions and how you approach your job having this additional musical context you know it's really wild because there are two distinct facets that my musical education has has helped me with uh the first which is really kind of unrelated to the education that i received more about where i did it uh, the lead singer guitar player of my band went to the same recording program at the same college that I did like nine years earlier. And he worked for the same local production company that I did. And when he found that out, he was, it sold him cause I didn't need to tell him what my experiences were because he already knew cause he had gone through the same thing. Um, but like, aside from that, the musical education, I was never much of a player and I was never really in music school to become a player. I wanted to become someone who, made music happen as opposed to someone who actually made music but the education has made it much easier to communicate with other musicians if they're you know classical theory based like michael you like to use the west side story example you say hey who's got that sharp four because i don't want that to poke out during this one chord things like that are awesome I was doing a gig with the Finger Lakes Opera locally, and I dropped the term Gazamkunstwerk. <laughs> and like her jaw just like totally dropped because she did not expect anyone to say that. Uh, but then, you know, on the other side, these guys are just gigging musicians. Like they're just doing it for a living. They've been at it for 10 years. So as long as you know how to be a good hang, it's not really terribly complicated. I mean, obviously, studying music has been a benefit in the sense that, like, ah, Here's what this song is doing, the emotional impact of this. They wrote it this way because it does X. And then when we move to this, there's tension and release. There's a lot of uh, like time stuff. They play with different time signatures that sometimes resolve and sometimes they don't. So when they do, you have to know why and you have to know how to bring that out. And yeah, six years of music theory has helped with that, but not as much as I paid for. <laughs> well, that's that's a different conversation. I think... For me, the working in environments where you're working with a band and it's more collaborative. I was thinking about like what Parker was talking about on his episode. He's talking about working with Spirit Box. Like when you go, okay, like the guitar isn't sitting. Do you know what I mean? Um, okay, is the guitar not sitting because it's a mixed thing? Is there something I need to do in the console? Or is the guitar tone something that needs work? Or is it the, the way the pedal board's set up? Or is it is it... Uh, the amp that's being used, like there could be a lot of a lot of ways to solve the problem, but you know, I don't want to compensate for one problem with a band aid somewhere else. So, I, I, you know, I've done a lot of work very closely. There's a local band who's all they're all friends of mine, and they're very much into. Um, well, okay, if you're going to put EQ on it, just tell me, and I'll I'll fix the problem. Because they're engineers, they like to you know, they're very into that kind of iterative design process. And so we've spent hours and hours and hours sitting there and working through patches and programming presets and, and, you know, guitar amp emulators and all that stuff. And um, in that situation, being able to talk like a musician and talk to them about, well, I think it's, you no, know, it might be the chord voicing or, you know, the, the issue is that he's anticipating that, that line and you're not anticipating that line. And that's why the rhythm's not clicking together. Like, you know, those aren't audio engineering things. And so I think having the, um, the context to spot them for what they are and be able to kind of diagnose it. Like a lot of times it's not something we can fix it, it, from a mixing perspective, but it's helped me to get more, 
context on why something may or may not be working and like what, how you would, how you would approach that. I mean, that's, you know, like, like you said, it's not, it's not a direct informer of my work, but it definitely gives me more uh, of a tool set. That's the way I'd describe that. I've been able to have a few moments like that uh, with this group Uh, in particular, like dynamics are one of the biggest tools that I have behind the desk to make everything feel like it has impact. There's only three guys on stage, so there's not that much, but there's, there's a surprising amount. Uh, And for this last run, you know, I've been logging the SPL and I look at the, I look at the report after the fact in the van the next day or whatever. And the line for all, basically every metric is just like, they all just look like a roller coaster that only goes up Mm -hmm. because the song just grows and grows and grows for 12 minutes straight. And we had a moment when we were practicing one song uh, that they had, it was on the record that they had just released, but they hadn't been playing it on stage yet. So we were working on it. I had to say, Hey, Sean, like, how do you want me to handle the last four minutes of this? Because it's just absolute chaos and the riffs, (laughs) like the riffs aren't really changing at this point. So I'm not like, I don't know what to do to avoid or to keep the listener's interest or to avoid fatiguing them. And he was like, just make it loud, just make it louder and then make it louder again. <laughs> and and so that's what we did. And dude, every time they play that song, it feels like the house is just going to burn down. Everybody is going wild. But then there's also moments where uh, maybe he doesn't like the way the guitar is sounding in his ears that night. Maybe it's something that's in his pedal board or maybe it's something. And so he'll just say, Hey, Nate, I moved this microphone, you know, like two inches down off the cone. And I say, okay, Sean, that's great because I'm for, I'm hashtag blessed that I don't need to work his guitar tone around two other guitar players who are playing the exact same fucking chords and the exact same inversions. Like it's an emo band or something. Like I only have one guitar and if he thinks it sounds good, it does sound good. He's literally an audio engineer. Like he's mixed the last three of their records. So it it's easy for me. Uh, it's a very lucky position that I found myself in there. But sometimes I have to say, hey man, when you're doing when you're stacking like four of these loops on top of each other for the song, the actual lead line gets completely buried behind all your chords. And he'll say, yeah, I kind of like thought that that might have been the case. And the next day, he'll like before sound check, he'll spend twenty minutes just dicking around with his pedal board. And by the time the show rolls around, it's great. He's found it and he's fixed it. But they were also, you know, and I, you know, sample size of one. I saw you do one show with them, but they were, you know, that was a terrible room. <laughs> that was like the worst room on that. That's tour. that's that's my curse. If I show up, something in your system is gonna gonna fail, or you're gonna have the worst venue. I, I when I went to go see Yak. Um, he, we joke about it all the time that the first time I ever went out to go hang out with Yak in person, uh, he was doing a Peter Frampton gig in Syracuse. And there was a really interesting behavior at 42 Hertz in that ceiling. Um, and I, I don't know if it's a, you know, talking about ventilation ducts, like maybe it's that, but he was just really having a rough time with it. And uh, the joke is now like, he's like, don't come see me, dude. Cause like something will be screwed up. You know, if you come out and you know, the same day, like a couple of their amps went haywire and there, there were all kinds of problems. And he was like, Oh, it's cause you're here looking at it all. So uh, at, at any rate, I, the band talking to you also about like, okay, I'm comfortable with this, but do you need me to turn down more? Like they're not just doing their thing and saying, do do your best. Like there's a real dialogue. It's two ways about, you know, if 
you can, you were giving them some feedback on, well, I think, you know, I think I can make this work, but you know, what would really help is if we do this. And they're like, okay, cool. Like meaning they're invested in the product and making your job easier. And you know, it's, it really seems like a team effort because sometimes it's not, sometimes it's just, we're going to go up and we're going to play and this is how we sound. And these are the tones and this is what we're going to do. And you just, you de chaos it as much as you can. And, and that's what you get, you know, but there's not an avenue to go back and say, gee, um, that one patch that you have, I, I remember talking to a keyboard player one time that I was, I was in a, uh, doing a short run with, and I was like, you have this one patch that's really, really compressed. And an over-compressed keyboard, like piano patch, doesn't sound good <laughs> through a PA. And and so um, there was that one patch, and every night I was like, ah, that one's not working for me. And so after like three nights, I was like, hey, man, that is there a compressor on there? And if so, can we just can we talk about walking it back a little bit? Because that's the one thing that sticks out of me every night. And he's like, yeah, cool. And we, we worked on it, fixed it. So when you have that Avenue, it's really, it can be really fruitful, but you don't always get it. So I think, you know, it, it was cool to see that you have that. Yeah. I mean, I have basically walked in to a scenario where like all the groundwork was laid already Their their previous engineer, they didn't fire him because they didn't like him. He moved across the country. So he's just no longer and, available. And was a stagehand for me on a Volby show, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. 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 He was, uh, he, Aaron was, uh, was one of my local hands. On, on, on no, Seattle, Aaron, Aaron toured with them for a month. Uh, that was oh, not the same they guy? met me and they had, they already had him booked for that one East Coast run. Uh, no, their previous engineer was named Grant. Oh. And he ended up moving to Denver, um, which is why he doesn't work for them anymore. But <laughs> he, he had already trained them. I, I say trained them. They, they have already learned before they had hired me to trust their, to place trust in their engineer and to have dialogue back and forth with the intent of creating the best show possible. So all I had to do was to convince them that I didn't suck, which only <laughs> took, I don't know, a week of rehearsals and two shows. And they said, yeah, okay, great. You're hired. Were you, are they, are they listening to board mixes or like, is there any sort of feedback loop there where they're checking out what the show sounded like and you're talking about it? I've got a zoom H six that lives mm. in front of house. Yep. That's the absolute bane of my fucking existence. <laughs> uh, you know, it, I'm recording the X, Y microphone off that and I'm sending the board feed into it. Uh, and I'm also two tracking off my desk and I'm also multi-tracking off my desk every night. And I've got all that stuff uploaded in the cloud. I don't think anybody's ever touched it once. <laughs> but here's the but thing, it's though. there. <laughs> no, no. But here's the thing, though, right? Because so it's it's like logging SPL. So I have this rule when I SE, and it's that is you know the front of house engineer sits down. My SPL log starts. Like doesn't matter if we're just doing line check because. On Volbeat, we do this thing called the roadie jam where, you know, we go through line check and then all the back line techs come out on stage and they, they play a song and they dial it in, right? Nice, nice and short real quick. And occasionally, you know, if somebody, if the engineer is fixing a problem or is really focused on working on one thing and doesn't look at the SPL meters and goes, oh, I don't even know how loud I was. I can pull up the log and it happens maybe twice in the like five months I've spent with them last year. But when it happened, it was super helpful when it was needed. But right. But until then, but you know, I, 
it's not like I'm generating, it's not like I'm being asked to generate reports every show, right? It's, you know, it, that is not what I've been asked to do on that show. And, but I still do it anyways, because the one in a million times you need it, you can go, it's here. Mm-hmm. And you look like such a hero too. Yo, I'm not going to lie. I was like the most useful I'd felt. In, like, all day. <laughs> I was like, this is the, oh, I've yeah. peaked. This is my moment. I was like, I did it guys. I pushed the button and they moment. needed it. The day I pulled out that soldering iron and repaired my drummer's uh, in-ear mixer power supply. Yeah, it was great. We were doing some – I don't remember what that was. Uh, it was – I think we were doing an install, Nate, and there was like some insanely weird – like, hey, there was like a uh, – I don't remember what it was. It was like a wire nut or there was some very oddball thing that somebody was just happened to have in their – in their pelican randomly and it was like i need three and they're like i have three and it, was, it was like you know three eighths inch hole drill bit or something that was you know we're like we're audio engineers we don't have that stuff but somebody did i remember i pulled my rj45 crimpers out of my van because i had to remake an ethercon for analog whatever that day because we needed to pull it out of the booth and then fish something back into the booth so i ended up needing to cut the end and then re-terminate it that that ended up being real helpful. Yeah, that's no. I remember I, that. I, yeah. Also, the sound bullet having the sound oh. bullet to verify the install mm-hmm. lines was so clutch that day. That's a cool little gadget. You've you've actually whipped that out a couple of times on our show. And I always, I literally the other I day was every like, excuse, dude. I was like, someone was like, you know, why don't you have a sound bullet? And I was literally like, because Nate has one, <laughs> he's gonna pull it out. And I don't need it. Um, we're we're when the seconds count, <laughs> Nate is only two hours away. <laughs> we're we're. A little bit up against the clock, but I want to talk about Fire in the Mountain because that was super fun. Uh, oh, yeah. So I got a call a couple years ago. It was probably two years ago, right? It was last, it was last summer that the festival was, wasn't it? It happened in 2022. Okay. So 2021, I got contacted by the organizers for this festival uh, outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, and it's, it's a metal festival, and the backdrop is the Grand Tetons. And it's awesome. And... Um, my involvement was uh, dealing with the the noise abatement of it. Oh, you got the t-shirt. <laughs> Nate's got the t-shirt. Um, He's holding up the t-shirt. Yeah. So it's it's on a what I believe is a land preserve or near a land preserve, um, and and there are neighbors or nearby. And the issue was getting the noise permits. And you know, uh, it was one of those situations where you've got local legislation that is maybe not technically. Robust. Yeah, it just, it's just, you know, um, so I, I guess they were looking at some of my papers on the topic and they reached out and they said, you know, we're looking for someone to just come in and, and, you know, help us, help us make this happen or just advise us on how to do this. And I, I flew out there and I did a site visit and I met the organizers, uh, Ollie and Jeremy, really fantastic people, uh, loved, loved going out there. It's absolutely gorgeous, like ridiculous, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like insane um and i did i did this the site survey and i wrote the report and i you know we we did our due diligence and they actually they ended up getting the permit and uh as you know the next summer they're like all right shows come in and you know one of the things that we had talked about in the course of the event was okay well, we're gonna have somebody there with a smart rig and they're going to be monitoring the levels they're going to be logging the levels and so you know one of the issues here is accountability and you got an arrangement with the city now that you're going to do this and we all going to want to you know like sam's talking about we want to be able to prove what was going on and have accountability for what was going on and uh then i got asked to go and do another show the same weekend it was a show i really wanted to do so it was like all right one of these i need to send a, a 
I need to send somebody else to go and do it. Um, and I was almost going to go do fire in the mountains and send somebody else to do the other show. And then I was like, wait, Nate would love this. <laughs> like I go, Nate, I go, Hey Nate, do you want to go, you want to go to, you got to get flown to Wyoming and hang out in the middle of a nature preserve and listen to metal music for three days and run smart. And you're like, hell yeah, I do. I love all those things. So, um, <clears throat> so that was my side of it. And then Nate ended up doing the, the event. Do you want to just talk a little bit about your experiences on that dude? Cause I think that was a pretty fun one. Yeah, that was super rad. Uh, so, less than a week, I think before I actually got on the plane to fly out there, you did another instance of your SBL class and the timing like could not have been any better because I knew relatively little about it until I took the class. And then I knew fucking everything about it, which like, it was just really, really excellent. So <laughs> we flew out there. You gave me like Thanks, two Scarlet solos. You, you gave me two ISM cons or like an audix TM one. And I had my buyer and I had my Scarlet and you sent me two netbooks and so I dropped a netbook at front of house for the main stage. I dropped a laptop at front of house for the secondary stage. And then I dropped a laptop on the property line as close to the nearest neighbor as I could possibly get. And I was there a couple of days before the festival actually started, uh, ostensibly to assist the local vendors in setting up, you know, the PA in such a manner that it would help keep energy off of the neighbors. And, you know, that is what ended up happening. We ended up hand rolling for the secondary stage. We ended up hand rolling a cardioid array just in front of the stage. I spent a few hours in ease focus and we just kind of did it. And then it worked. Which was like <laughs> a real part. Um, so the festival ran like Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And so what I did was just every time a set started, I walked over to front of house and I made sure that uh, the SPL log was running. And then I walked up to the property line and I made sure that that SPL log was running. And on Friday, when we were doing sound checks, we kind of figured out between us, like me standing at the property line, looking at the numbers and then someone else standing, you know, in the actual audience area, just listening to the sound checks or the sets. And we, we figured out between the two of us what was going to be way too loud for the neighbors to tolerate and what was going to be, you know, relatively reasonable. Um, and so that was a pretty cool, pretty cool experience. I, I walked a lot. There was a lot of sun. It was very dusty. It was very dry, but I saw some really, really sick death metal acts and just the, the shot of the mountains is really like absolutely mind blowing. It's like something out of a magazine because they have it set such that as you look at the main stage, the mountains are right there. Mm -hmm. You look through the main stage and like there they are. Uh, also, fun fact. Did you know that Grand Tetons is French for big titties? <laughs> Apparently that's true. I thought someone was pulling my leg. No, that's real. But like, it was an absolute blast. I had a really, really good time. Uh, it was very enjoyable. Everybody I met was extremely nice. All the patrons were very nice. Everybody who was working there was extremely nice. And then uh, Jeremy was nice enough to actually put me up in a hotel for a couple of days after the fact, so I could just dick around on the mountains for a little while. <laughs> it was funny because when uh, I was doing the pre-production on it, you know, I said, all right, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to send one of my, one of my texts out to you and like, you know, this is Nate and, you know, I think he'll be a good fit for this project and everything. And you guys will have a blast. And there was kind of a first moment where like, wait, you're not coming. Like, like they were like, oh, what? And who's, who's Nate? And then afterwards I got these emails and they're like, oh my God, we love Nate. Like he was there. Like, he was so great. And we want to work with Nate every year. Like we want, we want, we want to partner with you and we always want to have him here. So um, it kind of, it was just funny because it kind of worked out because like I, tolerate 
camping. <laughs> I tolerate it. Yeah. <laughs> and you love it. <laughs> yeah. You, you would have had to sleep in a tent for three days. I got to sleep in a tent for three days. That is the most accurate statement that has been said on this podcast. <laughs> I think what was really funny is I kept, um, I was in Louisville for my show and I kept, uh, one thing I learned when I did the site visit is not good cell service there, but if you walk up the hill, there's a little ranch and they've got Wi-Fi. And so I would, you know, do my measurements and I would go sit up at the ranch and I would, I would send the, the information out. And uh, so I was sending eight texts like, how's it going? Just checking in, making sure everything's functioning. And um, <laughs> he would go up to the hill every once in a while and, and update me. But the updates were not anything to do with like why we were there to the, the sound level measurement stuff. They were like how many Lord of the Rings references there had been in different bands. <laughs> <So that fair. laughs> Yo, there are so many death metal bands whose names are related to the Lord of the Rings. You're about to go on the road with one this summer. I am. That's true. Amon Amarth. Is that real? I'm doing a, yeah, Amon Amarth. Um, yeah, yeah, Amon Amarth. It literally means Mount Doom. I knew oh. that. I didn't know that. Well, uh, yeah. So the Wi-Fi at the festival itself was provided by Starlink. So it was like there, but it was tenuous. So I couldn't really text at all. So I ended up just messaging you on Discord with just hey, this happened, and I did X about it. And then later, hey, this happened, and I did X about it. No, but that's like such a good point to think about when you're hiring somebody or working for somebody, right? Is, you know, do they, do you trust them enough and do they trust you enough that when you don't have that communication, you don't worry about it? Because it wasn't. Well, that's the thing. It was just, well, it was also like, I can't, I'm doing my own show, number one, but also, you know, you, you may not be able to get a hold of me for the, the, right. for the aforementioned reasons. So, so like, do, are you able to respond to, you know, they're paying money to have somebody come out and deal with this. So are we confident? Yeah, are, we, <laughs> are you confident that, that you can deal with these things? And, and so, yeah, and they, they loved it and it was great. So I'm glad you got to do it. Um, all right, Nate. We're gonna, Michael. We're gonna, we're gonna uh, do this a little bit differently because Chris isn't here. But my question is, I think we've actually done this, but we're going to Rochester. Where, where are we eating? Yeah. So uh, here's the disclaimer: This is assuming you don't have a show in four hours, <laughs> uh, which you did at that time. <laughs> um, so when you're coming to Rochester, we're gonna do the Rochester thing, and we're gonna go to Nick Tahoe's, and we're gonna get garbage plates and Jenny Light. Yeah, and you need, I don't know what any of those Okay, so, so, so okay. for anyone who's not yeah, from New so York, tell me what a garbage plate is. A garbage plate, Sam. Now imagine you wanted to eat a cheeseburger and fries. It, like you don't, but imagine that you actually <laughs> did, and that you also wanted to have macaroni salad on the side with it. Now imagine you didn't want anything to be on the side, and you literally just chucked it all onto a plate and just like slathered a whole shit ton of ketchup, mustard, and meat hot sauce over the top of it. That's a garbage plate. <laughs> Best consumed after the hours of 1 a.m. It's kind of like whatever was left over from the deep fryer. Right? Yeah, it's literally like that, like, like uh, diner yeah. leftovers altogether, basically. Yeah. That's the authentic Rochester yeah, experience, baby. Crazy. If you did have a show and you didn't want to like put yourself through that gastrointestinal distress, <laughs> we're going to go to the Genesee Brew House because they have really, really good food and beer there. Oh, and you have a you have a dinosaur barbecue in Rochester, do you not? We do have That's a dinosaur barbecue. That's very good. I Rochester. recommend that very highly. Yeah. Yes. Anywhere they are, yes. they are good. Uh, all right, Sam, hit them up. Let's do it. All right, Nate. What do you wish you knew when you first started? 
when I first started, I wish I had known that just because you like everybody that you're working with and you spend your time around on site doesn't mean that you're in a good working environment. Ooh, that's solid. Ooh, that is solid. That's very solid. There, I mean, I legitimately do still like everybody that I worked with at the first production company, but I do not work there anymore. And I don't recommend them to people. <laughs> and I don't recommend people to them. <laughs> That's very good. Nate. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, man. There are more factors than just being friendly with people that make someplace a good place to work. Uh, no one has said that. That's the first time we've gotten that so far. I think that's great. That, that is yeah. the first time I've gotten that. Yeah. I've had 150 episodes to think about. It. <laughs> Nate, thank you for joining us, man. It was super fun. Thanks for it was us. excellent. Thanks, guys. 